Hi, men. Welcome to the Nobleman Podcast, Episode 66. This podcast is another installment from our tailgate series. Everybody loves a good combo, kind of like, uh, you know, I think about hot biscuits and gravy. Man, they go together well. So the messages from our Nobleman tailgate series are a great compliment to the podcast. This week, we're bringing you a message from Pastor Daniel Palmer. Daniel is a senior pastor at North Roanoke Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. He delivered this message at our Roanoke tailgate hosted by Lakeside Baptist Church in the spring of 2021. Daniel invites us to consider the life of Haman in the book of Esther. Haman was a man who wanted to be considered nobility, but he simply wasn't noble. Let's jump in. And now I want to bring up our uh, second speaker for the evening. Um, Daniel Palmer is pastor of North Roanoke Baptist Church, and he just came flying in here because they do a Saturday night service. They expanded their offerings because of COVID, and so he just preached a message at his church and uh, came buzzing in here. He is going to come and bring us a message tonight. I'm so happy to have you been here. Uh, many of you may know his dad. That's how I got to know the Palmer family. Your dad was pastor at Green Ridge for years, I think, now runs a missions organization. But when I talked to uh, some folks, they said Daniel is one of our favorite pastors and preachers uh, in this area, and so we are glad to have him here to come and speak to men. I know he's got a message for you tonight, and so come on up here, Daniel. It's good to be with you tonight. Have you had a good night so far? Fantastic. Praise the Lord. I want to ask you to take your copy of God's Word, if you've got it, and I hope you do. Esther chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. Esther chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. I want to begin by just saying good evening and thank you, Mike, for inviting me to be a part of this. I am, though uh, I just sprinted over here, I'm thrilled to be here. And I want to begin sort of with an apology. Uh, I'm not usually this late, uh, and I'm not sure if anybody's told you yet, but we're in a pandemic. And so we're having Saturday service to try and make room for everybody on Sunday. And that happens to be at 630. And so here I am. I uh, just pulled in. I didn't get to hear Brother Ed. Is Ed here still? This is Brother Ed. Awesome. Uh, I would say I'm sorry I didn't hear you, but as a two-time graduate of Virginia Tech and lifelong Hokie, I'm probably okay with not hearing you tonight. Just saying. <clears throat> I'm, uh, I'm starting tonight with an assumption that most of you are noble men, not because of what you have done or who you are, or because you belong to this organization in some way, but because you belong to the only true noble man, King Jesus. But as a pastor, I'm assuming most of you are involved in churches. Is that true? Because if I'm wrong, I'm going to have to make a big change and just pick a different text. Most of you are part of a church, men in the church, maybe even leaders in the church. Good. I, I, as a pastor, I've got a concern. Uh, my concern is men who become leaders in churches who end up being more impressed with themselves than with Jesus. Men who can give you chapter and verse of their church's history and the titles they've held, but who, who could not still to this day give you one chapter or one verse about where they can find the deity of Christ. Men who think that the purpose of student ministry is fun and games, even as they raise students who end up being faithless and godless. Men who love managing others but fail to ever manage their own households. At the end of the day, their church is about them, and it is not really about Jesus at all. And brothers, I want to remind you tonight that the local church does not exist for you to have a place to perform or pontificate or promulgate problems. 
and exert your personality. What your church needs from you is not your greatness. They need your unashamed, radical, passionate, self-sacrificing love for Jesus and those that he came to save. But somehow, and the Lord told us it would be this way until he returns. Churches always have some guys who are not noble men, but instead men who think they are nobility and insist on being treated as nobles. And what got me thinking about this problem is a character in the book of Esther. Yes, I was invited to speak at a men's event and chose the book of Esther. <laughs> when we arrive at chapter 5 in Esther, if you've read the story, and, and I'm going to have to kind of assume that you have for the sake of time tonight, there's been a decree of destruction in the kingdom of Persia. It's the largest kingdom in the history of the world to that time, and King Ahasuerus has allowed for a decree of destruction against the Jewish people, and just so happens his first king is sent away and Vashti becomes his next queen and Vashti is a, a Jewish woman but she conceals her identity because uh, she is told to do so by Mordecai for fear of what that might mean in terms of what the king would do to her. And so she conceals her identity and she compromises her convictions. She eats the king's food. She receives the king's beauty, beauty treatments. And then this decree of destruction comes because of the spat between Mordecai and Haman. Haman becomes the king's right-hand man. Mordecai saves the king's life, but instead Haman is exalted to be the king's right-hand man. And Haman hates Jewish people. He especially hates Mordecai. And he gets this decree of destruction. And Mordecai says, Esther! You've got to disclose who you are. You've got to go to the king, and you've got to hope that he holds out the scepter of acceptance to you. And Esther's like, you're crazy. You've been telling me to deny my identity or conceal my identity for five years, and now you want me to tell him who I am? Yep, that's pretty much what I'm telling you to do. Because if you don't, we're all going to die. Well, maybe we won't all die, but God will give us help from another place. But if you aren't willing to step out in faith and help us, then God's going to save us somehow, but he's going to judge you. And Esther's like, mm, let me think about it. All right. Let's call for a three-day fast. No eating, no drinking. We're as good as dead anyway. She calls for a three-day fast. She relies on the Lord who delivers his people always on the third day. Right? Read the Old Testament. When are people delivered? Third day, third day, third day, third day. Rahab the harlot. Spies come in. She hides them. And then she says, go out and hide for three days. And on the third day, you're going to be okay. Abraham and Isaac. For three days, Isaac is as good as dead. On the third day, God provides a lamb, but we know that that's not the, provides a ram, but we know that's not the lamb. And he says in Genesis twenty-two fourteen, one one day in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world will come. And John the Baptist tells us that's Jesus. So here's this, this plan for the destruction of God's people. Esther discerns in her fasting with the Lord a, a two-feast strategy. And we've had the first feast in chapter 5 already, but in, in Haman, so she's, she's working God's plan, and, and a lot of you in your churches, your pastors are, are trying to work God's plan, and, and you are trying to help work God's plan, but in Haman, what we see in chapter 9 through 14 is a different kind of character who's, who's not working a plan that is consistent with God and his people and his mission to get his Messiah to the world and glorify his son. He's, he's working a different kind of plan. It's a, it's a kind of plan like when Virginia Tech tosses the ball five, years, five yards into the backfield on third and two on the short side of the field. They do it all the time. I have no idea why you pitch it five yards in the backfield on third and two to the short side of the field. You got a free tackler on the sideline. Why do they do that, brother? I don't know. It never works. 
Or it's like calling a timeout before kicking the game, before the opposing team kicks a game-winning field goal. And you block it. It's planning that is doomed to fail. There are churches with some who, like Esther, are willing to lay down their lives for the sake of getting Jesus to the world. But there are others, like Haman, who are standing in the way and they don't even know it. Dowden says this, Satan makes plans all the time for the destruction of God's people, and then he uses others to carry them out. Haman probably had no clue Satan was at work in his life to attempt to wipe out the Messianic line. So Haman is going to give us a picture tonight of what it looks like when someone is working against God and his plan to send his son to the world and glorify his son. Haman is a noble in the kingdom, but he is anything but a noble man. And my prayer is that as we search the scriptures, we would let the Lord search us. Would you hear with me the word of God, verses 9 through 14 of Esther chapter 5? And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king, yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate, verse 14, then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman and he had the gallows made. Would you join me in praying? God, we ask tonight that if Haman is lingering in our hearts, if, if there's Haman inside of us, this desire to glory in self rather than to glory in the Savior. God, if there's any way we are, are functioning as a roadblock to the plan of God, would you get Haman out of us so that we can get with it for the glory of Christ? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Three things I want to show you tonight to, to avoid being part of Satan's work to undermine God's plan and glorify his son. There's, there's a few things we see in this text. The first in verse 9, we're going to use Haman sort of as a foil. If Haman has, has been taken over, co-opted by Satan to try and attack getting the Messiah to the world and getting his people saved, then, then what we see in verse 9 is sort of the opposite of, of what we need to do. We, what we see in verse 9 then is we must find our ultimate joy in Christ alone. We must find our ultimate joy in Christ alone. When, when Esther's feast concludes, things seem really good for Haman. In verse 9, he departs the feast. Do you see it in verse 9? He's joyful and glad of heart. He is intoxicated with wine and self-importance, but his joy lasts mere milliseconds because his joy didn't really have anything to do with the saving purposes of God. It actually had everything to do with other people recognizing his greatness. Did you know there are men who fail in the world who come into the church to have somebody recognize their greatness? When Mordecai doesn't honor him, Haman is, there it is, filled with wrath, just like he was back in chapter 3, verses 5 and 9. Did you know we can be like Haman? 
We, we can be filled with joy as God's plan is unfolding, but the moment his plan calls for us, like John the Baptist, to decrease so that Jesus can increase, that's the moment of real t- testing. That's when you'll find the proof in the pudding. In those moments, we have an opportunity to learn if our joy comes from knowing Jesus and serving him no matter what it costs, or if it actually comes from elevating ourselves and our own interests. You can do that in a local church. Haman's God is the praise of other people. He is the second highest ranking official in the kingdom, but if one person fails to honor him, he is, fail, he is filled with rage. Let me ask you a question, men. When was the last time you went from joy to explosive rage? What was the trigger? Maybe it was when Virginia Tech threw it to the short side of the field, five yards into the backfield. And what, what does that trigger say about an area where perhaps you've put something in your life ahead of delighting in and glorying in Jesus alone? Guys, if we're going to be positively involved in God's plan, we've got to seek joy not in the things of this world, but in Christ. Dowden says it this way, earthly pleasures and possessions, listen to this, lack the weightiness and the worthiness to sustain our joy forever. There's some men here tonight who are going from one fleeting passion to another and it's not sustaining you and you keep chasing it like a drug and then it disappoints you and you wonder, where can I find lasting joy? It's in Christ alone. He is the joy that never disappoints. Jesus says to his disciples, I'm I'm going to the cross and, and there's sorrow right now, but there's a joy that's coming and it will never depart from you. Piper says this, the joy Jesus brings is from outside the world. It is the very joy Jesus has himself, in himself, in God the Father, which he's had from all eternity and will have forever. Men, to be used by God, we've got to fight our idols and those things that we take joy and delight in that are lesser joys than Christ. We've got to fight our idols and we've got to remember the way up in the Christian life is always the way down. Secondly, we've got to measure our lives by our identity in Christ and not by our worldly significance. We see that in verses 10 through 13. We must measure our lives. How do you take stock of your life? How do you, how do you know things are going well in your life? Do you do it like Haman? Or do you do it because you belong to Christ? We've got to measure our lives by our identity in Christ and not by worldly significance. In verse 10, Haman pulls himself together and what does he do? He goes home and calls for a party to soothe his wounded ego. He gets his friends and his wife to tell him how great he is. One pastor says this, what Haman craved above all was not simply significance, but rather being seen to be significant. It wasn't enough for him to have a position. It wasn't enough for him to have a role in the kingdom. Everybody had to know about it raises a question, men. Are you leading to be seen as a leader or are you leading to lead others to Jesus? Verses 11 and 12, Haman boasts of his padded portfolio, his prolific progeny, all his sons, his plentiful promotions and his prestigious position and his privileged invitations to Esther's unprecedented private parties. Can can you imagine being one of Haman's sons? His own sons are a bullet on his resume. That's all they are to him. I pray 
gentlemen, if you have the blessing of being a father, that your kids are more to you than the, the sum of their achievements. That your children are blessings from God to steward and to cherish, to love and to lead to Christ. Haman takes credit for the gift of his own sons. That's what pride does in the human heart. It leads us to confuse God's blessings and mistake them for our achievements. Haman is very familiar with his achievements, by the way. It wasn't enough for him to be significant in the kingdom. He had to be known as significant. His significance had to be felt, appreciated, recognized by all. Like Satan himself, Haman wants a glory reserved for God alone. Haman is nothing like the Apostle Paul. You remember the Apostle Paul and after his conversion, anyway? You remember the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3? He says, look, I, I was an eighth day or I was the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I, uh, according to the law, I was blameless. I had everything you could want and I threw it all away. I counted it as dung for the surpassing riches of knowing Christ and his resurrection and him crucified. You remember that? And then in verses 12 and 13 and 14, he says, and I press on. For the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And how do I do that? Do you remember what he says? Forgetting what's behind. Does that mean he forgot he was a sinner? No. Elsewhere he calls himself the chief of sinners. What did Paul forget? He forgot what he did for God yesterday so he wouldn't be distracted by that and he would keep pressing on for the aim of the glory of Christ that he would lay hold of the feet of the one who was crucified for him, that he would behold his face. He believed to live as Christ and to die is great gain. And he forgot about his achievements and his accomplishments and what he did yesterday because that was nothing compared to where he was headed. But man, we live in a Haman kind of world. We live in a world where kids are trained to find their significance in the world's recognition of their assets or their accolades or their achievements. A a world that appeals to our fleshly desire to be the center of the show in so many ways. Sales awards, GPAs, and on and on and on. But these accomplishments, do we believe this tonight, church? Do we believe that these accomplishments ultimately, like Haman, leave us empty? Look at verse 13. Haman says all his accomplishments are worth what? Nothing. Not even all his sons. Can you imagine being his son? I'm worth nothing to you, Dad. Worth nothing to him. Even if one person, Mordecai the Jew, doesn't recognize his greatness. You say, you're being awfully hard tonight. I, I apologize, but men, we're not immune to this way of thinking. Pride is a liar. It leads us to believe that our significance comes from what we do rather than what Christ has done. It leads us to take great offense when our opinion doesn't win the day. It leads us to leave churches when somebody has a better idea than ours or when we didn't go in exactly the direction we wanted to go and the grass is always greener on the other side. Pride puts us in a dangerous place because as Proverbs 16.8 says, Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. And newsflash, the gallows that Haman's going to build for Mordecai will be the gallows on which he and his own pride will hang very shortly. 
As one pastor notes, our idols are most easily exposed by analyzing our strongest emotions. If you're taking notes tonight, that's pastoral gold. I didn't say it, but another pastor did. Our idols are most easily exposed by analyzing our strongest emotions. Let me ask you, what is it that causes you to be angry out of proportion to the offense? Haman is dishonored for a moment and he wants to kill a guy. There's a clue that is idol of pride is being threatened. What is it on the other side? What is it that makes us feel an unusually strong sense of achievement? Ooh, look what I did. This is great. It might be one of your idols being stoked. I've been experiencing some some health problems unexpectedly over the last six weeks. They began in the middle of a sermon where God was moving and all of a sudden the, the room began to just close in like Looney Tunes screen. I had to stop in the middle of the sermon. Been to the doctor. Doctors aren't sure. Waiting on a neurologist appointment. Lots of weird symptoms have been going on ever since. I'm a hard worker. Always have been. valedictorian at my high school with two other guys who were much smarter than me but I worked like crazy so I could be right there with them valedictorian in my college class several men and women much smarter than me but I just worked my tail off for six weeks I haven't had my balance Massive headaches. Stabbing pains randomly throughout my body. And I don't know what the diagnosis will ultimately be. But here's what God has taught me so far. My work ethic is my idol. What do I have that I have not received from God. My ability to work comes from God. My health comes from God. My family comes from God. My church comes from God. There's nothing that I have or can do or can contribute that is about me. It is all from him and for him. So, men, how should we counsel ourselves when we find we are motivated not by the glory of Christ, but by the glory of self? What do we do in those moments when we discover an idol we didn't even, like I have, we didn't even know that it was there? What do we do? We remember that Jesus died for the proud. We remember the one worthy of all honor came knowing he would be dishonored by the world to set the world aright. And we confess to our Savior our pride. We remember that our, our identity is not in our successes, but in 
Jesus. We remember the one who, though Lord of all, went to the cross like a lamb led to the slaughter so that he could make us new. And we beg God to get Haman out of our hearts for the Spirit to write eternity on our minds and lead us to follow Jesus and his way in the world, knowing that no worldly success or fame will ever truly satisfy our hearts. Your work ethic and your health and who you think you are can go just like that. Thirdly, verse 14. Man, we got to learn to listen to people who won't sacrifice God's mission for our ego. We got to learn to listen to people who won't sacrifice God's mission for our ego. Somebody didn't respect me. Somebody didn't take my opinion. This business meeting didn't go the way I wanted it. I can't believe the pastor didn't have time for me today. And then I'm going to go grab my group and they're going to blow smoke up my tailpipe. Rather than tell me what I need to hear. After Haman vents his anger, his wife and all his friends join the anger party. No one says, is it really right to be angry about a man who isn't recognizing your greatness, especially when you already have a decree to kill him at the end of the year? But Haman's the second most powerful man in the kingdom. A a man who will get a decree to kill you too if you defy him. So his friends justify his anger and his behavior and tell him to build a gallows. 50 feet high. It's quite an overnight construction project for the arrogance of one man. And let me tell you, while I've never seen anybody build a tower to their pride and arrogance, I've seen a number of prideful men willing to tear down whatever is necessary to prove their importance. Happens in churches. Don't be one of those men. The gallows are suggested to protect Haman's perception of his importance but what he really needed, brothers and sisters, brothers, were friends. He needed real friends. He needed some noble men in his life. Some men who would confront his pride and say, Stop being a jerk. Stop being a knucklehead. It's not about you, it's about Jesus. Every man in this room needs friends who aren't like Haman's. Every man in this room needs somebody who can speak raw, hard truth to you. Because the Bible is is clear, men. We are not called to manage our sin. We are called to kill our sin. We're not called to just cope with it. Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, we must put to death, therefore, what is earthly in us. So let me tell you tonight, gentlemen, if you're being counseled by your friends, if you've got this little circle inside the church where everybody just tells you how great you are all the time, get new friends. Or tell your friends, stop it. Tell me when I'm a knucklehead. You've got carte blanche to tell me what you think and to call me on the carpet and hold up the word of God like a mirror so that I will be not used like Haman to thwart the plan of God. I'll be a conduit of God's grace to build up God's church and magnify Jesus who came to seek and to save that which was lost. Loving Jesus who was crucified for your sin includes the ongoing work of Helping others crucify sin in their life and being the first to say, like Paul, I'm the chief of sinners, please help me. For me, it's my work ethic. At least that I know of right now. I'm sure he'll show me something else down the road. What is it for you? 
Are you a Haman hiding out in your church? Or are you John the Baptist saying, I must decrease so that he must increase? And Apostle Paul saying, whatever I did yesterday is nothing compared to the surpasses, surpassing riches that await me when I obtain the prize. And the prize that I want is not another bullet on my resume. The prize that I want is Christ and Christ alone. Lord Jesus, wherever you found us tonight, I pray that this wouldn't just be another talk, wouldn't just be another gathering, but God, you would take what Brother Ed said and the songs that have been sung and whatever you, you use this old donkey to say, God, I, I pray, I pray you will have accomplished something that you would make us less like Haman and a whole lot, lot more like Jesus and that you would use these men as vessels of your grace in, their, in your church. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. God bless you. Well, Pastor Palmer brought a challenge to all men, but especially to church men. We must become selfless. We must recognize that all we have is from him and for him. Are you willing to beg God to get Haman out of your heart, to let Jesus in and let the Holy Spirit fill you completely? Check out our show notes for references as well as links to Pastor Palmer's bio and his church page. Fellas, if you were blessed by this message, would you share it with someone? It would also be a blessing to us if you would take time to give us um, a compliment or a review or rating on your podcast service. That would be a big help to us. And one final thought, we're working on our fall tailgate series and are inviting friends and fans to help us fund the work. Visit noblewarriors.org slash donate to learn how you could partner with us as we prepare for these tailgates and are encouraging men to walk with Christ and lead well across the state of Virginia. God bless you, men.